Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, Dr. Christy Brown Montesano, Chair of Music History and Literature at the Colburn Conservatory of Music, explores Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor in this pre-recorded, pre-performance talk. Showing now through October 9th, tickets are available at laopera.org. Hello, LA Opera community. I'm Christy Brown Montesano, and I'm delighted to offer this introductory podcast to our opening work of the season, Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor, directed in a new production by Simon Stone. The occasion of a new production always calls me back to an essential aspect of opera as a genre, something that has really defined it since its earliest years in the first part of the 17th century. And that is, as I once framed it for students at UCLA when I was teaching an introduction to opera class there this past spring, I framed it in terms of opera having three essential pillars that really make it the operatic experience. And the first of those, of course, is the music. And the music, for the most part, stays pretty much the same. There are, of course, times when somebody will cut a number from a well-known opera. There are certainly, in Lucia, there have been different ways of singing the mad scene, certain cuts made there, certain adjustments, not in the least being the fact that for a long time, Donizetti's original scoring of Glass Harmonica was changed to uh, a flute version for the mad scene. So, but for the most part, music stays fairly stable, even across what is now almost 200 years, for instance, since Lucia's premiere. The second pillar, so the, the music is absolutely essential, arguably for many of us, the, the prime ingredient. The second is, of course, some kind of narrative that's been written down, that is put into language, and uh, that would be, in the case, the libretto. And libretti have also sometimes gone through changes. Libretti, for the most part, that that, that language narrative that's given to us is usually mediated, for the most part, through subtitles. And, and the subtitles are often translations. So in the case of Lucia, obviously we're dealing with an Italian uh, original libretto that's being translated into English. And often people in productions more and more will think about how those translations, uh, they can't be exact translations, literal translations, they need to sometimes portray, convey nuance in the language that uh, doesn't really translate if we use the exact word that, that say, Camerano, the, the libratus for Lucia used. So there's a little bit more flexibility, or let's say a, a little bit more mediation between the original um, object, the libretto, and what we are receiving. But by far the most flexible, and um, I would say in a sense evolving part of the operatic experience is the visual spectacle, all the visual drama and narrative that comes to us, settings, costumes, movement, all of the stagecraft creates an experience that is 
more unique in a sense, in that it doesn't necessarily follow a tradition in the way that the music and the libretto does. And that can be very unsettling for a genre and a culture that mostly trades in a well-known works. We say canonic repertoire, uh, works that are staged every season all over the world for good reason. They're popular, they're enjoyable, they're beloved for their stories and their gorgeous music. We really never tire of them. But a new production offers a unique opportunity to um, meet the work a, a anew. Meet it with uh, some different lens. You're looking at it in a new way or being invited to look at it in a new way. And this can sometimes deepen our relationship to the work. Um, and it also can be provocative, uh, sometimes even irritating. Uh, you you kind of want to go and you're used to the familiar and then something jolts you out. But for me, this is never a negative. As an opera scholar, I'm always grateful for the opportunity to, in a way, be unsettled and, and challenged from my expectations of the work as I've known it throughout my lifetime. And that's the opportunity we have with a new production. And so I wanted to put that out there as an invitation, which doesn't mean you have to like every new production you see, but recognize that this is a living part of opera, living in that it is still very flexible, changeable, responding uh, to the work with an eye to connecting to our world today, to an audience that is far removed from Donizetti's original audience. In fact, most operas are themselves dramatic reworkings of existing material, novels, plays, legends, fairy tales, even historical events are treated rather freely. Donizetti and his librettist Camarano very freely adapted Sir Walter Scott's novel, The Bride of Lammermoor, which had come out nearly a couple decades before. And that novel, based partly on history and partly on the legends that grew up around that history, featured a lot of romantic era elements that Donizetti and Camarano would have found very attractive. Uh, the aspects of the, of the supernatural, uh, a fateful love, uh, the moody atmospheric lands of Scotland. Um, and Scott had also in his novel exploited the popularity of the Romeo and Juliet star-crossed lovers template with the family feud setup. In fact, Shakespeare had a kind of uh, resurgence in popularity during the early Romantic era. What Scott also included was a lot of information about Scottish politics of the late 17th century, which is when this historical event happened. And Donizetti and Camarano were not interested in that. I mean, that's lost on most of us. It held no interest whatsoever for Donizetti and his initial Italian audiences. But just to give you an idea, the original historical event that Scott talks about has to do with the Dalrymple family. Uh, James Dalrymple was one of the, or the first Viscount of Stair, was a renowned lawyer. He operated at some of the highest levels of politics. Uh, the story goes that his daughter Janet made a secret betrothal to Lord Arch Archibald Rutherford, um, who had supported the exiled Charles II. 
So Rutherford was an unattractive match in the views of Janet's family members. He was broke and he had supported the wrong side on the political fights going on in Scotland at the time. And so the, the uh, Viscount and Viscountess of Stair identified a much better match for their eldest daughter uh, in a certain David Dunbar. And what we know is that something happened at the, at the night of the wedding. Uh, most of the legends say Janet stabbed David. Some say David stabbed Janet. Um, we do know that Janet died within like two weeks of her wedding and the rest is kind of clouded in mystery. Uh, Dunbar would not speak about it. And uh, Mr. Rutherford also kind of went off in history. So there was a lot of room to come up with stories around this in the kind of like Twitter way, you know, old school Twitter, uh, people just coming up with their bits of what they thought happened. And it made a rich trove of legends and gossip for Scott to create this novel. So as is typical with opera, uh, Donizetti and Camerano cut down the number of characters and focused on just a few. So in the novel, the kind of bad guy group is the entire Ashton family, except for Lucia, Lucy. And instead, Camerano limits this to Enrico, to Henry and her brother. And so he really becomes the antagonist and, and the pressure for her to uh, behave and to follow the dictates of familial command. Uh, you still have Lucy in, in obviously in the center, and uh, she is in love with Edgardo de Ravenswood, Edgardo of Ravenswood. And the Ravenswood and the Ashtons have been fighting uh, forever, especially recently. There's a feeling Edgardo really resents the fact that his father died. You get this idea that he died of like a heart attack or something because of losing his honor and his lands due to the machinations of the Ashtons. So you have this setup. It really doesn't matter. They're just both of these gentlemen are very unhappy with each other. They don't like each other. But Edgardo, who has fallen in love with Lucia, softens his position. He now wants to find some way forward to have uh, reconciliation. So you have this, this young woman, uh, emotionally fragile, caught in the middle. And in the novel, Lucy is portrayed as passive, very impressionable, rarely speaking. She, she speaks, you know, very softly, very firmly, and, and tends to stay quiet. She's a follower. But uh, Walter Scott also makes a point that she is a romantic. She's always reading romantic legends and novels and, you know, damsels in distress and knights who come and save them. And this is, in fact, how we learn that she meets Edgardo, is that a bull was going to charge after her and kill her, and he shot down the bull and rescued her. Um, but the problem with this passive, uh, fairly silent heroine in the novel is that that doesn't work very well in opera. And Donizetti made sure to give his Lucia ample opportunity to express her feelings. In what is called her mad scene, the violent psychological break that she basically has in front of us, 
is the ultimate showstopper of the whole opera. And this is the character, after all, for whom the opera is named. And you know what struck me again as I was watching Lucia, and particularly in this production, was how the opera's first and last scenes, we open and close with men, all male choruses and solos. The real tension here is not just a star-crossed love, but what it is being crossed by, which are the demands of honor and pride and revenge and family rank and grudge matches and all these things, a really toxic patriarchy. And you, you think about the opening words of the opera uh, in which Enrico, the brother Enrico Ashton's men are searching for a trespasser who has come onto their property. They have uh, their outrage. They feel dishonored because they believe this trespasser was meeting with Lucia. The words they give us, and then I'll play a little bit of this, is search the nearby beaches, the vast ruins of the tower. Let the veil fall from such a shameful secret. The hateful truth will shine out like a lightning flash through clouds of horror. Honor demands, imposes it. So let's listen to an excerpt from this opening chorus in the way that Donizete uh, uses orchestral sounds and musical style to project this kind of male outrage. like fanfare of the trumpets, the cymbals crashing, all of it has that kind of uh, warlike, pompous sense of honor and righteousness. And in fact, the first solo that we get, uh, the, the first cavatina, is Enrico, the brother. We get to hear from him first as a solo entity, a solo force in the opera. I want to let you hear a little bit of this the part where he expresses this chilling thought that he would rather see his sister, he would rather grieve her death by accident, by a lightning stroke. So again, we have this flash of lightning, the reference to lightning. He would rather be grieving her for an accidental death than have her 
fall in love with his enemy, which he sees as the ultimate betrayal. This male-dominated scene uh, ends with a horrible oath that Enrico makes. He basically shouts, wretched pair, the storm of my terrible fury is upon you. The evil passion that consumes you, I shall extinguish with blood, with sangue, the Italian word for blood. And sangue shows up a lot in this libretto. It, it has two related meanings, uh, sangue, the blood of revenge and violence, and sangue in the terms of blood relation, of kin. And of course, these are related and are central to the whole drama of the opera. Even Lucia is not spared this in her introduction, this cross between uh, the demands of blood and uh, a new demand of love, of a, a romantic love. She also has a cavatina, a double aria set up where she comes in um, and it's set up as, a, as the scene is set. And then she sings a slower section and then ends with a faster section. And this very typical bel canto setup also allows Donizetti to illustrate the double-sided nature of her character that even Scott remarked on, that is a, a more gentle, highly feminine, angelic side. Walter Scott says that uh, Lucy Ashton has something of the Madonna in her, but also this side touched by the romantic macabre, by blood, being haunted by blood. So when we first meet her, she comes in and Donizetti writes this incredible, uh, this beautiful bel canto worthy harp solo to introduce her before she ever sings. And it absolutely captures that fragile, angelic nature of Lucia.
this uh, divine angelic celestial mode, as I say, is set against something much darker, much more haunting and threatening, which is this this haunting, this ghost uh, in the fountain or spring area where Lucia meets Edgardo. She said, I'm always this place frightens me because there's the legend of the Ravenswood man who killed his lover here and she fell into the water and she haunts this place. And in fact, I've met her, you know, I've had an encounter with her. Uh, and she describes to her lady's maid, Eliza, who's with her, this encounter. And I want to play the excerpt where she says uh, in this part of the aria, Reñama nel silencio, there was a very silent, dark night. And she met this woman. And what she says about her is, I saw the lips moving as if she were trying to speak to me. And she reached out to me with this lifeless hand, seemed to be beckoning to me, calling to me. And she stood still for a moment and then vanished. Then Lucia makes this remark, and the water, which had been so clear before, so limpid, limpida, reddened with blood. When she sings this, Lucia also offers us really some of her first bel canto ornamentation, kind of a luxuriant vocalizing. So let's listen to that excerpt. Of course, all these strands of sangue, this, both the sangue of violence, the sangue of revenge, of jealousy, um, but also the sangue of kinship and uh, family honor come together and in the most horrible way in the mad scene uh, in which Lucia stabs her bridegroom, the man she's been forced to marry, and loses all sense of reason, has what we might think of as a psychotic break of some sort. It's a horrible scene and one of the, one of the highlights of the opera, not only for its uh, demands on the soloist, on the person that is singing Lucia, uh, vocally and also in terms of acting skill, the ability to portray uh, the sense of somebody who is delusional, who has lost all sense of reality in that moment. Um, and then just the extraordinary virtuosity of the coloratura, of the ornamentation of that aria. 
Donald said they add something, which is one of my favorite things about the mad scene, which is his original orchestration featured the glass harmonica. And mostly because they they were difficult to project, they were um, very fragile, and there weren't a lot of glass harmonica players around. It fell out of use for a very long time and was replaced by various arrangements with flute. Instead, we will be able to hear the glass harmonica in this production. It features glass harmonica player Friedrich Heinrich Kern, K-E-R-N. You can find him playing on videos on YouTube, so look it up. Uh, but it's just such an uncanny, eerie uh, sound that it creates so fragile, but also um, the resonance of it kind of echoes and creates a wonderful effect. So I look forward for all of you to be able to hear this if you have not heard the mad scene with glass harmonica. Very exciting. But I actually want to turn to a different scene, uh, one in which all of the players come together. All of the let's say, interested parties, the stakeholders to the ending of this drama, meet. I'm speaking about the Act 2, Scene 2, Sextet, which finally brings all of the main characters together. It is a terrible moment, as Raimondo, the chaplain who's been trying to keep the peace, expresses it. Lucia has just signed the marriage license, basically, the papers, she says, I have now signed my death warrant, basically. this She's been forced to marry someone else uh, of her brother's choosing, Arturo. She feels she has no choice, not least because Edgardo has not been heard from in months. He was away. She's written letters. She's had letters sent, but all of them have been intercepted. Uh, her brothers made sure that she didn't have any word of her beloved. And what's worse is rumors um, and some evidence have been shown to her that Edgardo has a new love. Abandoned, coerced, despondent, she agrees to be married. And at the moment that she signed these papers, suddenly through the door burst Edgardo. In the novel, it is quite interesting that Scott highlights that Edgardo enters and for two minutes, there is silence. Two minutes is a long time, but everybody is so shocked that he has returned, that he has made it back, that they are literally dumbstruck in the full sense of that word. But of course, that's a terrible <laughs> strategy for opera. You can't just have things be quiet for two minutes. So Donizetti does something quite um, conventional for opera, uh, which is to present the, the thoughts of the different characters as asides. When you look at the libretto, um, each one of them, when they begin to sing, it, the, the indication says, aparte, apart, as though you were addressing just the audience. We, as the audience, get this omniscient uh, access to their private thoughts, which is uh, one of the magical things of opera, but can seem a little strange because 
you wouldn't expect people just to start singing uh, in what is also a very kind of tender, uh, strangely um, positive sounding musical number. But this tenderness comes from the fact that everybody has a private reckoning of what has brought them to this point and their lack of action. Why can they, they not act? Edgardo and Enrico, who start the sextet, both basically say the same thing. Um, what is keeping me from killing that guy? <laughs> and both of them agree that it's their feelings about Lucia. For Edgardo, it's he's, I, I still love you, even though he calls her a heartless girl. Um, and Enrico is saying, I, I don't know why I don't want to kill him, except that I'm actually, I betrayed my mio sangue. I betrayed my kin. He says this, I betrayed my girl. Um, and now I'm full of remorse. So it's an interesting moment where you actually expect swords to clash. Lucia is, you know, would be completely almost paralyzed in the book. There's like no movement. So we hear her private thoughts. Um, as I said, Raimondo says, what a terrible moment. I mean, he really doesn't know what to say, but he also knows Lucia, that she looks like a withered rose that's hovering between death and life. Um, Elisa and the chorus and uh, even Arturo will echo the same basic thoughts as Raimundo. And so there we are, we're in this moment. And when you listen to the piece, it, it is one of those, at least from my perspective, a slight disconnect from what we dramatically would expect of a musical sound at this moment. But if you think about it as the intimate thoughts of each one of those people, that it's ceasing the dramatic tension as each of them goes inward and in a flat, what would be a flash of the moment, maybe for us, expresses all of the terrible burden of the circumstances and choices that have brought them to this moment. Let's listen. With such beautiful music 
it's hard not to just uh, luxuriate in that uh, aural beauty. But I hope this introduction has also, uh, in a way, prepared you to enter into the full operatic experience, one that that brings a drama that is disturbing. It it should shake us a little bit, and this production will also offer new ways of thinking about how such dramas, uh, a woman caught in terrible circumstances, driven to violence as a way of freeing herself. Thank you for joining me, Christy Brown Montesano, and I look forward to seeing you in the hall. Showing now through October 9th, tickets are available at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.